Good morning everyone and morning. welcome to this, the first of our theme talks at this year's summer school. Our opening words are adapted from some by Cliff Reed. We gathered this week together to co-create a community of the spirit, a place to share insights and ideas, a place to foster faith and sometimes find joy, a place where we can be ourselves and let others do the same. We strive to be a fellowship of faith and freedom, open-minded, open-hearted, real religion, a safer, softer, kinder space. At least that's our aim. But is there room for the darkness, the shadow beneath the chalice flame? Is this a place where we can bring our pain, our confusion, our despair? Let us say that it is such a place. A place for the whole of life's experience, a place for healing and solace too. And let us not just say that it is, let us make it so, as difficult as that may be. I will light our chalice, this familiar symbol that connects us with Unitarians the world over, with those who went before us and those will follow in the years to come. Every day brings struggle, every day brings joy. Every day brings us the opportunity to ease the struggle of another, to be the joy in another's life. May this little flame remind us to carry our light to each other and the world. And let's take a few moments right at the very start of our day to gather in prayer. Do whatever you need to do to get comfortable in your chair and in the right state of body and mind for us to pray together. Spirit of life, God of all love, source of all that is good and beautiful and true. As we move into this time of prayer, this time of quiet reflection and companionable stillness, we are readying ourselves to listen for your call. We gather this morning in varied states of readiness for what the day may bring. Whoever we are, however we are, Whatever's going on for us this morning, may we trust that in this place we are safe to be ourselves just as we are. And in the coming hours and days, may each of us find what we most need. May the weary find rest. May the troubled find peace. May the confused find insight. May the downhearted find comfort. May the isolated find a sense of connection. May the assured find moments of challenge and growth. May the inspired find opportunities to share their visions with others. And may we each remember that every single one of us here knows what it's like to be in all of those conditions. We offer up our hopes and fears, our aspirations and frustrations our beauty and our brokenness, and look to you for insight, healing and guidance. May we be led onward to the good. And as we explore our theme together this week and consider life's ultimate questions, these matters of life and death, 
May we hold each other ever so gently, as we are all surely held in the larger embrace of love. Amen. Let's sing together now. Um, <coughs> this session goes on to 10.15. You'll be glad to hear that's not all me. Um, I've included lots of singing this morning to keep our energy up. Also, for you to use as wiggle breaks or loo breaks or whatever you need them for, uh, make sure you're comfortable. Uh, hopefully you'll love your yellow hymn sheet. Um, the, first, the first hymn is one we've already had one and a half goes at. Uh, oh, the beauty in a life. Now, it's one of my favourites. It's a Filipino folk tune. And if you're anything like me, you might find yourself gently bobbing. I encourage this sort of behaviour. Um, Cody's going to play it through once before we stand to sing. Uh, enjoy. share with you now from a picture book in fact some of you already know it I know our children and young people read it for the first time yesterday I only chanced across it really very recently Duth, duck death and the tulip spoiler alert it hasn't got an happy ending <laughs> not exactly anyway but it's not quite a sad ending either in a sense, it hasn't really got an ending at all. See what you make of it. I think it's truthful, beautiful, and rather poignant. And we've got the pictures from the book up on the big screen. So if you want to adjust yourself so that you can follow along. For a while now, Duck had had a feeling. Who are you? 
What are you up to, creeping along behind me? Good, said Death. You finally noticed me. I'm Death. Duck was scared stiff, and who could blame her? You've come to fetch me, she asked. Oh, I've been close by all your life, just in case. In case of what? asked Duck. In case something happens to you, a nasty cold, an accident, you never know. Are you going to make something happen? asked Duck. Oh, life takes care of that, the coughs, the colds, all the other things that happen to you. Fox, for example. Duck tried not to think about that, it gave her goosebumps. <laughs> Death gave her a friendly smile. Actually, he was nice. If you forgot for a moment who he was, he was really quite nice. Shall we go down to the pond, she asked. Death had been dreading that. Before long, Death decided that he had his limits. Forgive me, he said. I really must get away from this damp. <laughs> Are you cold? Duck asked. Shall I warm you a little? Nobody had ever offered to do that for Death. Duck woke first, though, very early in the morning. I'm not dead, she thought to herself. She poked, Duck, poked Death in the ribs. I'm not Death, she cracked, utterly delighted. Pleased for you. That's Death said, stretching. And if I'd died, she asked, then I wouldn't have been able to sleep in, Death yawned. <laughs> that wasn't a very nice thing to say, thought Duck. <laughs> For a while she refused to speak, but soon she was chattering again. Some ducks say you become an angel and sit on a cloud looking over the earth. Quite possibly. Death rose to his feet. You've got the wings already. <laughs> Some ducks say that deep in the earth there's a place where you'll be roasted where you, if you haven't been good. Well, you ducks come up with some amazing stories, but who knows? So you don't know either, ducks sucked. Death just looked at her. What should we do today, Death said, changing the subject. Well, let's not go back to the pond. Let's do something really exciting, said Duck. Death was relieved. Shall we climb a tree, he teased. <laughs> You can see what Duck thought of that idea. <laughs> However, <laughs> they could see the pond far below. There it lay, so still and so lonely. That's what it will be like when I'm dead, Duck thought. The pond, all alone, without me. Death could sometimes read minds. When you're dead, the pond will be gone too, at least for you. Are you sure? Duck was astonished. As sure as sure can be, Death said. That's a comfort. I won't have to mourn over it when I'm... When you're dead. Death finished the sentence. He wasn't coy about the subject. <laughs> Let's climb down. Duck pleaded after a bit. You can start having strange thoughts in trees. <laughs> Summer was ending and they went less and less often to the pond. They sat together in the grass saying little. When a cool wind ruffled her feathers, Duck felt its chill for the first time. I'm cold, she said one evening. Will you warm me up a little? Snowflakes drifted down. Something had happened. Death looked at the duck. She stopped breathing. She lay quite still. Death stroked a few rumpled feathers back into place and then he carried her to the great river. He laid her gently on the water and nudged her on her way. 
For a long time he watched her. When she was lost to sight, he was almost a little moved. But that's life, thought death. That's the story of Duck, Death and the Tulip. It's from the picture book by Wolf Earlbrook. Let's sing again. This is a gentle hymn, and I think we need a gentle hymn after that. Um, I suggest we sing it five times through. It's voice still and small. Um, it's a good one to know by heart, I think, and one to sing to ourselves when we need comfort. It's also time for our young people to go off to their own programme, so um, we'll see you later on. Enjoy yourselves. I suggest we stay seated for this one as we sing, and Cody will just play it through once before we start. <coughs>
The theme of this year's summer school poses just about the biggest question we humans can ask ourselves. How then shall we live? I take this question to have several other questions implicitly wrapped up in it. How shall we live knowing that sooner or later we're going to die? What constitutes a good life anyway in this troubled and chaotic world? What are we meant to be doing in our all too brief span? What's the point? I can't say I feel especially well equipped to answer these questions, but then again, who is? I'll give it a go, seeing as I'm here. <laughs> I thought it might be wise to bring a companion along with me for this morning though, uh, to help in my exploration of these vexing questions that accompany us all in life. So the person I'm bringing along for the ride is known only as Koheleth. I know some of you, the biblical scholars in the room, will already have met him. He's credited with writing the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the wisdom texts in the Old Testament. And he was wrestling with the questions like this, the same ones we'll be looking at this week, about two and a half thousand years ago. Koheleth isn't actually his name, by the way. It's actually a pseudonym, meaning something like preacher or teacher or gatherer. An evangelical friend of mine first nudged me to read Ecclesiastes about 20 years ago, just before I discovered Unitarianism, when I was still what you might call a freelance agnostic. I suspect his then minister might have coached him into doing it, hoping for a conversion, because I hear it's supposed to be the book of the Bible that's most palatable to atheists. As I understand it, and don't get your hopes up, I'm no great biblical scholar, the book of Ecclesiastes only just made the cut into the Bible. It's very much a book for outsiders. When the authorities decided, sat down to decide what was in and what was out of the official canon, it sounds like it was little more than a quirk of local politics that kept Ecclesiastes in despite the odds. It sticks out a bit and some people still regard it as something of an oddity. In this short book, Koheleth, who's described as a king, a powerful man, he reflects on his life. He's seen and done it all. He's amassed wealth. He's lived it up along the way. And now what? Let me share these famous words with you, the opening verses of the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 2 to 11. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? A generation comes... And a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hurries to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they continue to flow. All things are wearisome more than one can express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. The people of long ago are not remembered, nor will there be any remembrance of people yet to come by those who come after them. Now, I suppose at first glance, Koheleth comes across as a, a glass-half-empty kind of person. <laughs> vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This word, hebel, that is famously translated as vanity, 
It runs through the whole of the book of Ecclesiastes, but apparently it's a tricky one to translate. Taking literally, hebel might be something like breath or vapour. Alternative renderings of the word might include absurd, pointless, meaningless, mysterious, ephemeral, contradictory, incomprehensible or empty. Life is utterly absurd, is what he's saying. It's pointless. What do we even have to show for all the work we put in, all the suffering we endure during our brief life here on earth? We're here and then we're gone and all too soon we are forgotten, just like everybody else. Now, Caheleth is someone who's done well in life. He's looking back over his achievements. He's applied his mind to gain great knowledge and wisdom, worldly know-how. He's taken pleasure in food and drink and all the delights of the flesh, nudge, nudge. <laughs> He's built houses, planted vineyards, made great works and made a name for himself. But over time, he's come to realise that none of it's going to last and one day he too will be gone. It's the lot of everyone who lives and everyone who has ever lived throughout the generations, though most of us avoid thinking about it too much on a day-to-day -day basis for understandable reasons. Cahelis says, it's an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. Now, at this point, some of you may be thinking that Kaheleth is an insufferable misery guts. <laughs> but I still reckon we can take some important guidance from Kaheleth, and I, th I think his first lesson for us is this. We need to live with our eyes open and our wits engaged to face reality as it really is. There is something to be said for having a clear-eyed awareness of our predicament. The human condition, the way things are, warts and all, and God knows life can really seem quite warty sometimes. Of course, that is not the whole story. In most lives, we can identify things to be thankful for. Even in the worst of situations, people have been known to find moments of goodness and beauty, and it's quite a good strategy to make a point of noticing the good in our life. There is no need to catastrophize or make things out to be worse than they really are. But at the same time, it's no good going into denial about the very real suffering that exists and which can cast a shadow even over lives that seem to be brimming with good things. And of course, it's not just Kaheleth. All is Dukkha, as the Buddhists say, the first of the Four Noble Truths. And that too, like Hebel in Ecclesiastes, is something that's subject to various translations and connotations. All is suffering, all is pain, all is hard, all is struggle, all is impermanent, nothing lasts. I don't know about the rest of you, but when I find myself struggling, and for much of my life I have struggled with long periods of depression and very high anxiety, sometimes connected to particular life circumstances, sometimes free-floating and attaching itself onto whatever's going by, arising for no apparent reason, but incapacitating me, sometimes for weeks or months on end. When I'm struggling like that or anything like that, I don't find it particularly helpful to hear from cheerful people. <laughs> At least not in the first instance. When I'm really struggling, I find it more consoling, strangely, to hear from someone like good old Kaheleth, who basically seems to say, you're right, this really sucks. I too have struggled to get out of bed in the morning and face another day. Something else has to follow this if we're to pick ourselves up. But I find that an acknowledgement, an honest acknowledgement of how things are for us, that's both us being willing to name it. Sorry, Ned, I've just tapped the microphone. That's both us being willing to name it and others being willing to hear it with kindness and compassion, without brushing it aside and changing the subject, 
without suggesting we take up a gratitude practice or cheer up and smile or otherwise trying to fix the situation. Such simple, honest acknowledgement of our pain and suffering may enable us to remain authentically connected to others, to the world, at a time when we might otherwise feel like disconnecting entirely and shutting ourselves away. This authentic connection might be the lifeline that helps us find our way into a better place, to find a way to cope with life as it is, even if our material circumstances are unlikely to change. Maria Popova, curator of the excellent Brain Pickings blog, recently shared the story of a young neurosurgeon, Paul Kalanithi, who, at the height of his powers, was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. He died within two years of his diagnosis, aged just 37, in 2015. Maria Popova introduced her telling of Kalanithi's life and death with these words. All life is lived in the shadow of its own finitude, of which we are always aware, an awareness we systematically blunt through the daily distractions of living. Kalanithi's memoir is a sobering revelation of how much our sense of self is tied up with our sense of potential and possibility, the selves we would like to become, the selves we work tirelessly towards becoming. His reflections illuminate the only thing we have in common, our mortality, and how it spurs all of us in ways both minute and monumental to pursue a life of meaning. End quote. In the same piece, Maria Popova used a phrase which succinctly names our predicament. Paul and his wife Lucy had a child, a daughter, during the time of his illness. And Popova referred to the child as being this brand new being, blessed and burdened with her own infinite potential for an inherently finite life. I think that's perfectly put. And aren't we all, each of us, blessed and burdened with our own infinite potential for an inherently finite life? And as the years pass, consciously or unconsciously, this paradox will likely loom larger for us. Some years ago, in my day job at Essex Church down in Notting Hill Gate, I was working on a project to liven up the old wayside pulpit, the notice board outside the church where we put up inspirational quotations about life in the hope that they'll provide a sort of drive-by ministry to people going past on the bus. Um, or people waiting at the stop that's just outside the church, and maybe one of them will come in one of these days. I picked out a bunch of quotations that had appealed to me. Pages and pages were on the UUA website, and I went through them all and picked the ones that I liked the look of. One of the quotes I got printed up was attributed to George Eliot. It is never too late to be what you might have been. Now, at the time I was doing this work, I was in my early 30s. I'd just made the leap to chuck in my old job, which was making me miserable in the hope of finding a new life for myself, working on something I cared about, working with people who treated me with a bit of dignity. That quotation from Eliot seemed to affirm my own choice to start afresh and follow a new dream. I found it encouraging and hopeful, and I thought the rest of the world could do with the uplifting message too. But when I put the poster up, or when I went to put the poster up, Sarah, our minister, she vetoed it. <laughs> She laughed when she saw it and she pointed out, not unreasonably, that it's one of those quotes that sounds really lovely but is not ultimately true. <laughs> and it sounds less and less true the more time you've spent on the planet. It's never too late to be what you might have been. Well, if we could wind the clock back, there are lots of things I might have been. I might have been a medical physicist. That's the most plausible of a life. 
for we, which never came to pass. That's the one I walked away from. In theory, I might have been an artist, an astrologer, a gardener, a bus driver. As a teenager, my modest ambition was to top the indie charts as a guitarist in a pop-punk band. <laughs> as a child, I don't really remember having any thoughts of what I wanted to do when I grew up. But I did have a brief phase of thinking about becoming an Olympic triple jumper. <laughs> this was before women were even allowed to compete in the triple jump, so I feel I would have been a trailblazer. Um, <laughs> all of these might have been of my early life. They're clearly now going to stay that way, especially the triple jump. Whatever window of opportunity I might have had to pursue them has now well and truly closed. And I imagine that near enough everyone in this room has got their own set of might-have-been stories. I'm not just thinking of the top-level choices about relationships and careers and so on. Um, there's all those lists of 100 films to watch before you die. No chance. I'm already too far behind. Never mind the 100 beers to drink before you die. I'm, I'm a teetotaler. I'm lost on the 100 beers list. I picture in my mind's eye the walls and walls of shelves and stacks of books I've got at home. I'm never going to read them all. I'm 43. <laughs> of course, I don't suppose that will stop me stockpiling further in the years to come. I'm a lost cause. <laughs> as we go through life, way leads on to way, as Robert Frost once said. Each time we come to a fork in the road, a decision point, no matter how seemingly small or insignificant, we make our choice. And yeah, new possibilities emerge and open up as a result, but other possibilities, other turnings, are left behind each time, gone perhaps forever. Sometimes it is too late. There are some might-have-beens that surely never now will be. There's a particular metaphor for life that really appeals to me. It comes from a piece by the UU minister, Gordon McKeeman, called Leftovers. He speaks of going to the fridge in his kitchen, opening the door to see what's there, surveying the decidedly mixed bag of leftover ingredients it contains and asking himself, what can I make out of that? He says, we might just as well open the door of our past, our lives, what we've done so far, open the door, survey the scene and ask ourselves the same question. He says, in making a life we're all cooking with leftovers from childhood. <laughs> the longer we're at it, the more leftovers there are. Each day of, you, of your life you open the door and you're faced with the question, what can I make of it? In all of our lives, by the time we're old enough to start shaping our own destiny in any significant way, all sorts of external influences have already acted on us, shaping our sense of what's possible, beginning to form our outlook, our identity, setting down those deeply rooted habits of thought and behaviour which sometimes serve us well and sometimes not so well. Many things we never had a part in choosing have a huge impact for good on Ill or ill on the way we've turned out. At the most basic level, the random shuffle of genetic inheritance deals us a certain hand, a collection of physical attributes and dispositions then the virtues, vices and peculiar quirks of our families that we picked up in early life. They will to some degree influence how we operate later on, not to mention the influence of any stories that our families have told ourselves about ourselves, stories that we might well still be carrying with us. And the times we were born into, the political climate, the prevailing social attitudes that surrounded us in our formative years and the environment in which we find ourselves now, these too will have affected not just our opinions and our worldview, but also our opportunities. 
We may have experienced this influence in a positive or a negative way. At times, each of us may have benefited from the prevailing systems of privilege. At times, we may have found ourselves being disadvantaged and discriminated against. We may at times have been swept along with the majority view and conformed with it. And at other times, we may have reacted against it and defined ourselves in opposition to the masses. Either way, the larger political and social tides will have played a part in shaping who we are. Every time my own tendency for perfectionism kicks in and when I'm tempted to beat myself up over some imagined shortcoming or another, I try to remind myself that all these accidental factors, internal and external, which in any sense aren't really my fault, they are to some extent already tying my hands. And I try to remember that and show a bit of compassion and solidarity when I think about other people's lives and limitations as well. So when we attempt to answer the question, how then shall we live, we should perhaps set out by bearing in mind the serious constraints that each of us are already operating under. Before we're in a position to even ask ourselves that question, how then shall we live, our life is already well underway. Choices that we've already made already, or that other people have made for us, they've limited and expanded our opportunities, they've formed us to some extent. And even if we were extremely fortunate and dealt a really great hand by life, the clock is still ticking. If we think back to Kaheleth for a minute, it's worth bearing in mind that his insights are coming from a position of relative privilege. He was supposed to be a king, after all. So he wasn't even subject to the sort of hardship and oppression that so many ordinary people have had to overcome or endure throughout most of human history. But still, he suffered, because nobody is exempt from disappointment, impermanence, loss, eventually loss of self, because in the end we are all mortal. Such is the human condition. Death is our companion, as it was for the duck. Death is with us wherever we go. Each of us is blessed and burdened with our own infinite potential for an inherently finite life. Let's pause there to sing once again. Our next hymn is called Living and Dying. If it's one you already know, well, I apologise for switching the tune. It wasn't one that I knew. Um, so let's find that one on our yellow hymn sheet and stand as we are able to sing Living and Dying.
So what does it mean to live a good life anyway? Especially considering its finitude and all the other constraints and limitations I've just been mentioning. Well, that's the central question of ethics. It's kept philosophers busy for millennia, so I hope you won't be too disappointed to hear I'm not going to give you a comprehensive answer to that question in the next half hour. It's a bit big for a theme talk. But I'll say this. There's no way I know of that you can work out how to live from first principles, completely neutrally, as if the recipe for a good life could be determined quasi-scientifically. If you look at any ethical system closely, you'll find it rests on some basic assumptions which can best be described as ethical intuitions. It's a bit like leftovers all over again. Everyone, even the great philosophers, was born into a particular culture, inherits particular values, and as we get older we can choose to consciously accept, reject or refine what we've inherited. But even if you don't consciously base your life on a set of commandments written in stone, you will at some level have picked up your sense of right and wrong from elders and forebears. In recent years, my way of thinking about the good life has been shaped by Aristotle and his followers on the path of virtue. Unlike some of the other major ethical theories out there, the ones which seem to require complex moral calculus and cost-benefit analysis of every single situation we meet, virtue ethics, as the tradition inspired by Aristotle is known, it has quite a different approach. On the path of virtue, you don't ask what should I do? Instead, you ask, who should I be? According to Aristotle, the point or purpose of life is human flourishing, ours and other people's. By flourishing, I think he means something like a combination of basic material well-being and something more like fulfilment, at least some of that infinite potential we were born with. Think of um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if that's something you're familiar with. Uh, we all have the most basic needs for safety and nourishment, then needs for relatedness and connection, then needs for dignity and achievement, and eventually something like self-actualisation. A good life, according to Aristotle and his followers and me, centres on this sort of flourishing. As we flourish, we also support the flourishing of others. That's a non-negotiable part of the package. It is for each of us a life's work to consciously develop ourselves in virtue and practical wisdom and support others in doing the same. One of the things I like most about virtue ethics is that it acknowledges from the off that the world is complicated and contradictory, as are the variously flawed humans that live in it. In contrast to other ethical systems, it doesn't collapse what matters in life to a single variable benefit or duty, say. It acknowledges that there are a whole range of human values that matter to us. Kindness, honesty, courage, generosity, sensitivity, enthusiasm, reliability, the list is long. And although we might each have different key virtues that we consider to be more worthwhile or values that we try to embody more than others, these are generally qualities that everybody would agree are valuable to some degree. The idea is that over the course of a lifetime we should aim to consciously dis develop these traits, these virtues in ourselves, perhaps by attempting to emulate moral heroes, the people we most trust and admire. It's about striving towards excellence as a person without giving ourselves a hard time because we know what leftovers we're working with. 
it's taken for granted in virtue ethics that we're always learning and that we have a responsibility to keep learning and to keep working on ourselves, but it's progress, not perfection. The notion of human flourishing is both this ongoing process and the ideal that draws us forward. Something to note about the path of virtue, and I think this is a feature, not a bug, is that virtues can be in conflict with one another. They can seem to pull in opposite directions. For example, there are occasions where honesty might prompt you to say, no, that haircut looks absolutely ridiculous and I wouldn't recommend you go out like that. <laughs> Whereas kindness might lead you to say, well, it's very provocative. <laughs> or, or perhaps better say nothing at all. <laughs> and that's how, that's how life is. But Danny, there are times and places where both of those responses are the right response. <laughs> it's not always that there's a clear-cut right answer. There's not always a universal one-size-fits-all. The right thing to do at one time might be very, very much the wrong thing to do at another. I really like the fact that the path of virtue acknowledges that apparently contradictory things can be both simultaneously good and true and valuable. It's very much a both-and approach. Speaking of which, let me bring in my mate Kaheleth again. I'm going to read you his greatest hit. <laughs> The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what has been planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. The paradoxical nature of life is right at the heart of what Kaheleth has to teach us. Do you remember the idea that did the rounds a few years back, popularised by Malcolm Gladwell, that to truly master a skill you have to put in 10,000 hours of deliberate practice? Whether it's playing a musical instrument, programming, commu programming computers, playing a sport or so on. You could say something similar about the path of virtue. You've got to stick at it. There's one virtue that stands out above all others, according to Aristotle and his team. The master virtue, the one that gathers all the others, is practical wisdom, know-how. Practical wisdom is what enables you to decide which of the virtues takes precedence when two or more seem to be pulling you in different directions. It's a sort of situational sensitivity. And it's the sort of know-how that only slowly emerges over a lifetime of dedication to the practice. If, you're if you care about and if you're committed to reflecting on your place in the world. If you are wise, you will know when it is a time to break down and when it is a time to build up. When it is a time to throw away stones and when it's time to gather stones together. And the more you develop in this practical intuition, practical wisdom, the more you can trust your moral intuition. 
It strikes me that developing, strengthening, deepening this moral intuition is particularly important right now in the world we're living in. I kind of want to say in this, this wicked world we're living in. In a world where willful misinformation, propaganda and bias seem to be rife. Where the most basic of shared human values we once took for granted now seem to be up for debate. Where there sometimes seems to be little solid moral ground on which we can stand. It seems ever more important to me that we develop and hold firm to an inner sense of the good to strengthen our moral compass, you might say, develop our own moral sturdiness, so that we are not too easily bamboozled or led astray by people acting in bad faith, by people who have no interest in mutual flourishing or the common good, but who are just looking out for their own, regardless of the cost to others. This inner sense of the good, which is the primary way, I should say, the primary way I experience God is this inner sense of the good. I reckon it needs to be tuned into, cultivated and nurtured, made a priority in life, perhaps through prayer, perhaps through journaling, or whatever other means we have at our disposal. Who knows, perhaps by, you know, meeting together at churches and making them places of mutual flourishing. We live in such a complex web of interdependence that every action we take or fail to take is likely to have effects which ripple out far beyond what is obvious and immediate to us. How then shall we live? Well, perhaps another aspect of the answer is that we should strive to develop in virtue and in practical wisdom that this may lead to mutual flourishing. But we should also expect to live in creative tension in a world of paradox in the world of both and. Martin Luther King once observed, life at its best is a creative synthesis of opposites in fruitful harmony. It's pretty difficult to imagine a single person simultaneously having the characteristics of the serpent and the dove, but that is what Jesus expects. We must combine the toughness of the serpent and the softness of the dove, a tough mind and a tender heart. Let's sing again. Rummage for your hymn sheets. Our next one is just as long as I have breath, I must answer yes to life. And do take this as an opportunity to wiggle if you need to.
The American writer and journalist Roy Scranton recently published a book entitled We're Doomed, Now What? <laughs> I was tempted to nick that for the title of the talk. There are signs of doom at almost every scale of our lives if we're so minded to see it. We've already talked about the most fundamental form of doom, mortality. Subjective doom, the end of us as an individual thinking, feeling, being, our non-existence. And I'm setting aside thoughts of an afterlife, at least an individuated afterlife for now. Not dismissively, um, it's just for me the ultimate unknowable, and I like to be pragmatic about it. Then, seeing as we're a bunch of Unitarians in a room together, we could think about community-level doom. We could think about the struggle for us to thrive, to flourish as a denomination. The awareness that many congregations are shrinking, some closing, and that shifts in religious and spiritual expression are making a positive future for the church somewhat harder to imagine. Depending on your position in relation to Brexit, you may feel we're facing doom at a national level. And international politics, particularly for our friends across the pond, is looking undeniably doomy for anyone of a vaguely progressive bent. World events of the past few years have been shocking, especially, I'd say, for those of us in the West who have led relatively sheltered lives for a time now. It's harder than it ever was, I reckon, to wholeheartedly believe in the myth of progress, onward and upward forever, which used to be so central to the Unitarian outlook. So Roy Scranton has, in his recent work, been considering perhaps the doomiest of all the dooms, human-made climate change. He's writing from the perspective that climate change has already gone too far. We've already done the damage. There's no sign of humanity changing its ways, and it may well be too late for that anyway. He writes, The middle and later decades of the 21st century, my daughter's adult life, promised to be a global catastrophe whose full implications any reasonable person must turn away from in horror. End quote. If we accept that as true, we're not just talking about our own non-existence, but potentially the non-existence of our entire species as the planet progressively becomes uninhabitable. And we'll likely take another bunch of species and habitats down with us when we go. What if all this doom-mongering is spot on? Or even close to spot on? What if this is what we've got coming? The planet's had it, humanity's on its way out sooner rather than later, and the death throes are likely to be painful in all manner of ways. Our church is likely on its way out, our nation is going through huge upheavals. Ultimately, we and everyone we know will no longer exist, and we know that one is definitely true. As Roy Scranton so succinctly puts it, we're doomed. Now what? You know that moment in the story where the duck wakes up and says, I'm not dead, with a hint of surprise, and then goes about doing her duckly business. <laughs> Occasionally when I'm feeling particularly low, particularly preoccupied with bleak thoughts, I'll wake up sad and I'll lie in bed thinking, well, I'm still here. And I'll often follow that with a short but heartfelt prayer, something like, God, help me face the day I've got coming and help me do whatever it is I am meant to do. Let's turn to Caheleth one last time for guidance that's slightly more uplifting than we've come to expect from him. <laughs> Chapter 9, verses 4 to 10. Whoever is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. 
the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward. Even the memory of them is lost. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. Never again will they have any share in all that happens under the sun. So go eat your bread with enjoyment and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has long ago approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Do not let oil be lacking upon your head. Enjoy life with the wife that you love all the days of your vain life that are given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and the toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So Kehelleth reminds us we should enjoy ourselves while we still can. It's later than we think. We're still allowed, we're still encouraged to take pleasure in life, even if it turns out we're dancing to the music of a band that's playing as the ship goes down. To start off with, he sounded like he was saying something like, where there's life, there's hope. But by the end, it seems to have shifted to something more like, where there's life, there's still something to be done. If you've woken up again this morning, there's still a job to do even if it's only to try and make one little corner of the world a bit more livable for yourself and the other people around you. As Kahelis says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Royce Granton, in one of his essays entitled Raising My Child in a Doomed World, says this. It's quite a long quotation, but I love it, so I wanted to share it. Living ethically means understanding that actions have consequences taking responsibility for how those consequences ripple out across the web of life in which each of us is irrevocably enmeshed and working each day to ease what suffering we can. Living ethically means limiting our desires, respecting the deep interdependence of all things in nature and honouring the fact that our existence on the planet is a gift that comes from nowhere and which may be taken back at any time. I can't protect my daughter from the future and I can't even promise her a better life. All I can do is teach her. Teach her how to care, how to be kind, and how to live within the limits of nature's grace. I can teach her to be tough but resilient, adaptable and prudent, because she's going to have to struggle for what she needs. But I also need to teach her to fight for what's right, because none of us is in this alone. I need to teach her that all things die, even her and me and her mother and the world we know, but coming to terms with this difficult truth is the beginning of wisdom. Words from Roy Scranton in his essay, Raising My Child in a Doomed World. <clears throat> there are very many different ways of imagining our place in the great scheme of things. Many different cosmologies and theologies, metaphors and stories to help us understand. Here's one that works for me, that rings true, that doesn't promise very much, but it helps me to live. See what you make of it, it might be helpful for you too. There is a potential inherent in everything that exists, all matter and energy. A potential for becoming, for joining and combining, evolving and co-creating. Maybe it's related to what we think of as consciousness, maybe what we call soul. Perhaps it's what we euphemistically call sparks of the divine. I'm happy to call it God. 
God is within and without everything that is and ever has been. Quarks, leptons and bosons, rocks, rain and mud, trees, bees, buffaloes and bacteria, human beings, including us. And all our relations, anima and apparently inanimate. God experiences God's self simultaneously subject and object as the universe unfolds. Everywhere in the universe, all at once, is a point of consciousness, a point of soul, a point of God. There's not, in my understanding, a single coherent mind directing the show, not an all-powerful super-being that's existed fully formed for eternity, but I reckon there is a collective, connected consciousness emerging from it all as we go along. All forms are impermanent. The potential within is continually recycled and rearranged, but each and everything that exists or has ever existed is part of this unfolding oneness. As individuals, as communities, as nations, as species, we come and we go. But we're part of something bigger that's too vast to fully comprehend. And I believe there's an orientation to the universe that points us, calls us, towards goodness. That's how we're most likely to experience God, I'd say, through encountering goodness in all that is, and recognising it, whilst living towards the good ourselves in the knowledge that we too are particles of God. That's my working hypothesis, the cosmology, the theology, the story that helps me to live. To slightly misquote Teresa of Avila, God has no body but ours, no hands, no feet on earth but ours, Ours are the eyes through which God looks compassion to the world. Ours are the feet with which God walks to do good. Ours are the hands through which God blesses all the world. A couple of lines from a poem by Mary Carr called Wisdom, the Voice of God, have been rolling round my mind while preparing for today. She writes, The voice of God never panders, offers no five-year plan, no long-term solution, no edicts from a cloudy white beard hooked over ears. It is small and fond and local. The voice of God is small and fond and local. Perhaps that's our final hint as to how we should live, with the intent to find our calling, small, fond and local as it may be, our unique contribution to the unfolding of God in the universe, the unfolding of good in the universe to make meaning despite the predicament of finitude in which we find ourselves, by discerning how we're called to do God's work in the very place where we are, to claim our purpose as God's feet and hands, eyes, ears and voice, to relieve suffering, to create beauty, overturn oppression, to love and bless one another. And as Cahelis says, whatever our hand finds to do, do it with all our might. Just time for one last hymn, one of my favourites, Wake Now My Senses. Let's join in singing.
Some closing words. To bless does not mean saying magical words, changing the mind of God or altering the course of the cosmos. To bless does mean reminding each other of our gifts, remembering the wisdom that is within us and recalling our common purpose. The choices we make and the work we do are how we bless each other and the world. May the words we say and the songs we sing name the wholeness we are and still seek. The world aches for us to join together and bring about healing, toil for justice and produce ever-increasing love. This is our calling. Let us live our way into it from this day forward. Amen. Amen.